We've been in this series talking through uh, the early part of Genesis, talking about the way that God created things and what he was looking for uh, from us and kind of setting some of the things straight. So we talked a lot about, um, you know, basically we spent four or five weeks going through just a few chapters at the beginning of Genesis, focusing intensely on one, two, three, four chapters in the beginning. Uh, Today, I'm going to literally move us through about two chapters so you're going to have to hang with me this morning. It's going to be a little bit like drinking from the fire hose. Uh, I'll be a lot of scripture because I'm going to be telling the story of Noah. And I think Noah is one of those, uh, it's almost like, oh, you put Noah on the day of a baby dedication. You know, it's like, I think sometimes we uh, turn Noah into this palatable sort of children's story. We paint, I, I, by the way, I, I'm sorry if this is you, if I'm calling you out here, but we paint Noah in our children's nurseries, and we celebrate that every person on the earth died except for a few people in the ship. It's, it's actually an intense story, and you may ask yourself a lot of questions about Noah. You might say, well, do you believe this actually happened? Or is this just like a, a way of God sort of teaching us uh, a, mor- a morality uh, story here? Um, you may ask yourself, is that even possible? Does science confirm that this happened with the story of Noah? And I just want you to know, like, if you have some of those kinds of questions, um, I'd love to talk to you after. I'm not going to satisfy any of those questions today because what I'm going to actually talk about is really what God is getting at by telling us this story and making sure that we have this in Scripture. What was the point of him doing this and then making sure this story was passed to us and making sure that we have this story? Like, It's more important for us to understand what it teaches us about who God is and about sin and about judgment, and about also mercy, and about also grace. You may not even realize those things are in there, but they are. There's this mixture with God where it comes to, uh, you know, God is perfectly just, right? He's perfectly merciful. He is perfectly full of grace. And all these things sort of merge together, and sometimes it feels like it doesn't quite make sense, but I think we actually do see a balance in the story of Noah. So if you would uh, oblige... And by the way, there are notes on our app. So if you download uh, the Pursuit app in the App Store, uh, there are things, if you like to be one of those people that like fills in stuff as you go, you can fill in stuff digitally, you can take notes digitally, and you can send it out to yourself at the end. It's pretty nifty. So that's one way to follow. But for the passage, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6, and we'll be in 6 and 7 mostly. And I'm going to start here with verse 5. There's basically been a whole bunch of generations between Adam and Noah, And humanity is kind of built up on the earth. And now Noah comes into the frame. So here's what it says. The Lord saw how great wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination on the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. So it's not going well. Right? We we talked about sort of Adam. And then we talked about Cain and Abel. And things kind of had been moving sort of downward, away from outward, eastward, essentially, away from what God wanted people to be doing, and towards the inclination of the human heart. And I want you guys to know, like, what comes through very clearly in Genesis is that given enough time, right, we will serve ourselves. Like, the selfishness is in us from day one, and we fight it our entire lives, and it's something that we have to win a battle over, that we have to allow Christ to come in and heal and change, Otherwise, we'll find ourselves getting more and more and wicked. And if you give us more time, we just get more wicked. 
right? So these people have had more time than our average lifespan and they've just gotten worse and worse and worse to the point where, you know, the, the scripture here says, it, like, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Doesn't leave any space for anything good happening. Now, those of us who love justice would have to put ourselves in that situation and say, am I okay with a world where every inclination of the heart of the average person is only pointed towards evil all of the time? That sounds like dystopian and horrible and suffering and all kinds of terrible things going on. And this is what God is looking at. After generations of people come and populate the earth, it is not going well. It is going about as bad as it could. Verse 6, The Lord regretted that He had made human beings on the earth, and His heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created, and with them all the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. So, uh, I recently, I you know, those of you guys who have been part of this church for a while, you know this, and if you're new today, uh, just to let you in, I had a little little procedure this year, uh, had some open heart surgery. I, when I read this, this passage and I try to understand what God means when he says he looks out at his creation, right, and he, he is disappointed with what he sees and that he regrets having made human beings on the earth, like I was trying to process what that would look like. Do I think God made a mistake here and accidentally allowed this to happen and then regretted later? No, I don't think that's what it's reading to me at all. Uh, but I was thinking about the moment I laid down on the table and they were going to take me in for surgery and I was about to have this incredibly invasive surgery where they were going to basically cut all my chest open, pull it apart, go into my heart, fix the valve that was broken, do all kinds of crazy things, which by the way, amazing that we could do that, right? That's Brian, that's why he's in charge. Uh, and I started to think well, that feeling when I was laying on the table of dread... And I thought, man, I regret making this appointment. Now, did I actually regret making this appointment? No, I needed to make the appointment, and it was definitely the right thing to do, and I absolutely should have made the appointment. But right before I was about to get wheeled into the OR, just right before, that, that point where I had absolutely no, uh, you know, I was just laid bare there in front of a staff full of people who were working all around me, Right, And I realized that when I woke up, it was going to basically be the worst pain of my lifetime and then I was going to be suffering for a few weeks. I thought, man, I really regret making this appointment, <laughs> right? Like, I think God is seeing what has to happen here. And he's already regretting the fact that he's got to, if he's just, step in and end the sickness that's going on here. As he's let humans choose their way, they've chosen to continue to serve themselves and to use each other and to continue to you know, propagate violence against one another. And I, I think probably what's happened here, and I think this happens to us in our culture sometimes, it happens in certain ways, is when you start to see people as objects and you start to use people as objects and you start to become violent against them or you know, see them as a means to an end, sexually or you know whatever you start to see some of this real evil seep into culture and there's certain pockets of it that we see where all of a sudden we've turned people into objects we've objectified them and now all of a sudden you see some real evil you see you know sex trafficking you see 
a lot of other things that I won't say with a lot of little ears around, but you understand there are pockets of our culture that look like this. That we see some of this evil out there, right? And this is what was happening everywhere. And God looked at this and said, what I have to do, I already regret that I'm in this position and I need to do this. I know I need to do it, and I'm going to, and it's the right thing, but man, it does not feel great. It's not what I would have chosen for this race of people. And so it says then in, in verse 8, but Noah, right? So there's all these people that God regrets even having, having made them, but it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's almost as if there's really only one person left that God can find who has honor in his eyes, who has pleased him. And you ask the question, what was so special about Noah? Well, here, here we go. This is the account of Noah and his family, verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the peoples on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all of this, to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and I'm surely going to destroy them and this earth. So make yourself an ark out of cypress wood. Make rooms in it. Coat it with pitch on the inside. I don't know what pitch is. I think it's waterproof. That's what it seems like, right? Uh, coat it with cypress wood. Make rooms in it. Uh, coat it on the inside and the outside. Make this ark 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 31 cubits high all around. It's big. If anyone's ever seen the pictures of the ark they made in Ohio or wherever that is, I know... I know Russ has been there. He told me about it. Uh, I, I would love to see it just to see it. I don't know if I would love the exhibits or whatever around it, but I would love to see it just for the size of it. It's like a football field and a half long and humongously high and multi-level, and it would probably be very, very impressive. That's what God is asking him to do. Now, I know that if God put me to work on a project like that, I don't know if I get to the end of it. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say, no, it's got some skills here. So it says, make a roof for it, below leaving the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door on the side of it, make a lower middle upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under heavens, every creature that has breath in it. Everything on the earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of every kind of bird, every kind of animal, and every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. And here's the thing. You ask the question, what does Noah do that makes him special? What does Noah do that makes him stand out among the people of his time? And it's right here in verse 22, and it's also in verse 5 of the next chapter. It says, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. It's, it's, actually, it's actually a lot simpler than we make it out to be. Often we're struggling to become who God wants us to be, and we think if we just learn a new thing or read a new book or have some breakthrough in the way that we think or whatever, that will make the difference. And that won't always make the difference. In fact, you probably already know what you need to follow God more closely. You just need to do it. 
obedience is actually what's really happening. I'll, I'll touch on that later, but obedience is what makes Noah stand out among his people. The Lord then said to Noah, go into the ark with your whole family. This is the next chapter, verse 1. Because I found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every... By the way, that's a nice little question you can ask kids who are learning about this story. Like, how many animals did Noah take on the ark? The correct answer is clean or unclean, right? It's not twosies, twosies. No, am I the only one? The Lord told Noah to build him. Okay, now we know who grew up in church and who didn't, okay? I've just outed all of you guys. Uh, not just twosies, twosies, seven clean, two unclean. That's how, that's how it goes. So if you really want to win the Jeopardy question, you got to say seven, or you got to say, I need to know if it's clean or unclean animals. Um, take with you seven of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, uh, one pair of every unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive through the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth. 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And here's verse 5. This is what's so impressive about Noah. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him to do. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And here's what, what I want you to understand before we get to the end here. Noah started building the ark here, it says, when he was 500 and finished building the ark when he was 600. He didn't build it in a week. This wasn't a, a, this wasn't a quick process. This was a slow, long process. That's going to become very important when you look at the mercy of God later on. In the 600 year of Noah's life, and the seventh day of the second month on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst, and the floodgates of heaven were open, and all the rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights, and that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of their three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings, pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark, the animals going in were male and female of every living thing, as God had commanded Noah. And then the Lord shut them in. And for forty days the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The water rose and covered the mountains to the depth of more than 15 cubits, every living thing that moved on land perished, birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swam over the earth and all mankind, everything on dry land that had breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out, people, animals, creatures that moved along the ground and the birds that were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. Now, you ask me scientifically, if this is possible and if this happened and if this is real. And I would tell you, we can't be 100% sure. You know, there are scientists right now looking at a date that's like 13, 14,000 years ago and the sea level changed on the earth like 120 feet and it was a massive worldwide event. You have 
cultures all over the world that have the same narrative that there was some sort of flood. I can't tell you scientifically, I can't tell you his, histori- historically if this is possible, but I do think that as we learn more about history and about uh, the context of the world that we live in, we often find that what we have in Scripture is very accurate. So I don't know what happened, and I don't know if this is like a, a story that was meant to give us an exact replication of what happened, but I don't think that's why we have the story. I think God is trying to say something to us, even today, about who Noah is and about who we are. So I made a couple of observations about this passage, right? And, and we know the end of it, right? It's, it's, it, it goes on for months. Finally, they set down. Noah comes out of the ark, and then they restart humanity, and God makes a promise never to do that again, and he gives them the promise of a rainbow, right? And so we understand how this, how this story ends. And in some ways, it ends beautifully, because now there's this new family that's going to restart and honor God in the new sort of humanity that's going to be brought forth. But in some ways, it's about as horrible as it could possibly be, right? I know um, I watched the, the Noah movie with Russell Crowe, which I do not recommend. It was horrible. Uh, and I watched it a couple years ago, and I, I think the one thing I took away from that movie uh, after watching it was when the scene came, when the rain came and the boat sort of lifted off into the water, there were people on the outside screaming and scratching on the side of the boat trying to get into the boat. Like, I'd never thought really through the idea that what we paint on our kids' walls is not really that cute. Like, to God, there was a grieved spirit about what it was that he felt like he had to do in this moment to be both just right, and, and merciful. You say, how could he be just and merciful? Well, just because he didn't allow for the sin and the violence to continue on and he judged that sin and that violence properly. Right? He, he basically uh, allowed people to receive what needed to be had from the sin that was so great. But also there was mercy there, which we don't always pick up on. Because Noah built this boat for a hundred years. For a hundred years, people who lived among Noah obviously saw this from all I mean, you probably could have seen it from miles away, this boat being erected. People obviously knew who Noah was, saw what he was doing, and could have asked at any point or changed the way that they were. And for a hundred years, they walked by the boat and they still decided to be violent and to choose violence in their lives, to allow their sin to take over their lives and to choose that. And so for a hundred years, God was being merciful by not judging and trying to build this gigantic monument in the middle of nowhere, that would have been the tallest, largest, craziest thing that anyone had ever seen. Almost beckoning people in to say, look, there's a very small way to be saved from the world around you. So I'm going to give you mercy. I'm going to give you a hundred years to make the choice on who it is that you're going to serve. You can serve me. You come over here and pick up a hammer and work with Noah. Or you can continue to serve yourself. I don't know about you, but I don't get more than a hundred. I eat way too much bacon to get a hundred. There's no way I'm going to get a hundred years. And yet that was what was staring these people in the face every single day. The idea that we could, at any point, 
trade our sin in and decide to live the life that God has for us is available to us every day. We call this the gospel, that God doesn't leave us dead in our sin, but offers us a way forward. And that way is narrow. In this case, that narrow way, the gospel in this case, was one door on one ship. That's what it looked like to be saved. And there was an option there. There was an opportunity, and there was mercy in allowing people to continue on for a hundred years while they, while God prepared to make a way for Noah. You know, and I think one of the things I take away from this is that sin does not get better with time. I think often we think that if we continue to just evolve and get better as humans, get better as society, that some of these horrible things will find their way out of our world. But in 2023, we still live in a time where racism exists, where sex trafficking exists, where sin is prevalent among our time, and plenty of other things that I can't necessarily say. But all of these things, they, they should be gone. It's 2023. We should be like, hey, this is not a thing. This injustice shouldn't be here. But it is, because time doesn't take away sin, right? Changed hearts and humility is what kills Sin and it kills it in each one of our lives and then into our culture. Our our church, one of the greatest parts of being part of a church, and I, I think this is a question that a lot of younger people ask, why should I even be part of a church? Why do I need to be part of one? Because as you change and as the other people in this church change, we change the culture of the area that we live in. Right? We are able to make a difference in people's lives because we're all changing all together, moving forward and creating God's kingdom where we are. If we're waiting for the world to get better around us, it just gets different worse. The worst changes, the things that the culture is enamored with, it changes. It's different in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s and 2010s and it's different now. It's always going to continue to change, but... Uh, there's a there's a, a scripture in the New Testament that talks about how evil people continue to look for new ways to do evil. We will find new ways to serve ourselves in our sin. It's not going to go away with time. It's not going to be all better in 2025 or 2030 or 2040 just because we've evolved as people. No, it'll just be still evil and different evil. The second thing I, I, I see in this passage is that Judgment is coming for everyone. God will judge every person. It's not a problem that God judges these people at what feels like a time before their life has ended, naturally. God will judge all of us. There will be a time where you stand before God and you will have to make a case as to why it is that you should be allowed to be with God in eternity. And I think for most people, their answer to that question is, I'm better than the guy down the street. I'm better than my neighbor. I don't do what he does. Listen, I have the hardest time. I have the best neighbor in the world. This guy, like, his lawn is absolutely gorgeous. Right? His dog is, like, picked up every single time he makes, you know, he does his business and gets picked up. This guy, it will be the first one to show up at your house with a chainsaw when your tree falls down. He'll be the first guy... Right? I am definitely worse than my neighbor. I got weeds all over the place. I haven't you know, done my yard work correctly. I, I haven't taken care. I got stuff going on in my yard. Like I'm, the, I'm definitely the worst neighbor. I think probably if we were to judge ourselves, we'd say, 
he's a better human than I am, right? I would lose in the are you better than this guy kind of contest. Luckily, that's not what God asks us. He doesn't care if you're a little bit better than the next person. He cares whether or not you have transferred your faith to Jesus Christ. Whether you've said, hey, I'm not perfect and I put all the weight for my eternity onto Christ and I've received His salvation. That's it. That's all it is. I think sometimes we think that we won't have this great judgment because we're actually pretty good. And to be honest with you, Minnesotans are pretty good people. Right? We probably win against, I don't know, everybody in New York. Everybody in Massachusetts. Everybody in California. Okay? But it doesn't matter. Because people in Massachusetts need faith in Jesus. People here need faith in Jesus. We have sin. They have sin. The only way that we escape judgment in the way that we want to escape judgment is to accept the salvation that Jesus Christ offers. The only way for people in Noah's day to accept, uh, to escape judgment would have been to get in that boat when the time came. Third idea was that we must live counterculturally like Noah. And what's interesting is that this paints this really interesting dichotomy between Noah and everybody else, like as if he's the last man who's living for God among his culture. And I don't, I don't know how you feel, but it feels to me like it's getting more and more difficult to live for Jesus in the culture around us. The culture seems to be ratcheting up and getting crazier and crazier and crazier. And God calls us to step back and to look at what God's values are and to live those things out in front of the world around us. And it's not easy. Right? It's not, it's not an easy thing to do. And we think it's not easy. There are people around the world that are persecuted for having their faith. We go through a small amount of people's judgment because we live counterculturally. I'm sure Noah felt that, but he was called to live in a certain way, and he did. And that is what we are called to do as well, to live counterculturally, to say God's priorities are more important than culture's priorities. By the way, you can't keep up with culture's priorities. Whatever it was five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago is now completely different. And now you're canceled and judged for what it was five years ago or ten years ago. There's no way to keep up with it. The only thing that we can do is step back and say, if, if I can orient my life to serve God no matter what the world around me is doing, that is what I'm called to do. And that's what it looks like to change the world around you, to have a lot of people in a specific area doing that together. That's a church. That's what we're trying to do here. So we must live counterculture like Noah. The fourth one, Noah's superpower is his obedience. Right? What makes Noah special among all the people of his time was that he was obedient. And I just, I look around and wonder if we are even asking the question, what does God want me to do? And then are we doing the thing that God has asked us to do? And like I said, we could study the Bible forever, and that's awesome. We should do that, right? I think there's plenty of things that we think might make the difference for us in our lives, but often what we're doing is we're learning new things or trying to focus on this or that or the other thing, and we're neglecting the simple obedience of following Jesus. 
Like it's not really that complicated. You don't need another sermon to tell you how to live. You don't need another Bible study to, to teach you something that you already know. That you need to go and do the things that God has called us to do. I mean, what did, what did Jesus say? He said, you know, if you're looking for my followers, they're the ones that are obeying the words that I'm giving you. They're the ones that are after the heart of God. They're the ones that are keyed into what's going on here. And they're living this thing out. And they might not be the ones you expect. They might not look exactly like what you think, but they're obedient. That's what we're called to do, to be obedient. That's what Noah's superpower was. It was simple obedience in the mix, the mess of the culture that he lived among. And then the last, last idea here is that God always makes a way. I... One of the things I love most about this church is that we focus in on the idea that we are imperfect people and this is an imperfect church, right? And that's what we exist for, an imperfect church for imperfect people. There's always a way back. There's always a way to win over the sin by allowing Jesus to be part of the picture. There's always a way for us to continue to turn and then follow God and what He's called us to do. There's always a way towards salvation that no one is lost. No one is going to miss the boat if they decide they don't want to miss the boat. And that God makes a way. And that is the essence of the gospel that you're invited in to change your life and follow, follow Jesus. Let me pray and close our time here. God, I pray that you would help us to see this opportunity ahead of us, this idea that you are creating a way forward for all of us that you call us out of the sin that we find ourselves in, out of the culture that's all around us, and you call us into a relationship with you where we can live and move and and have your being, where we can be in step with your spirit, God, where we can create your kingdom in our lives, God, that we can love and serve people the way that you want us to. God, I pray this church would look like it's a generation of people like Noah, that we would be actively serving, actively looking to stay in step with your spirit, actively giving up our own self-interest and following you in obedience. God, help us. Help us to do that. Help us to actually do the things that we know are, are right. In Jesus' name, amen.